Hi, my name is Lewis Wardrop. I'm your host for today's HSE and Me podcast. Uh, sorry it's been so long since I've been back with you. I uh, had a little bit of a problem with uh, a medical emergency, and it's kept me out for about six months. I'm back up and running. Everything seems to be fine. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about the Industrial Revolution Sparks the Safety Revolution. Basically, a history on HSE. Where did health, safety, and environmental uh regulatory information. Where did it come from? How did it come about? Uh, Back in the Industrial Revolution, which was a period between 1750 and 1850, there were a lot of changes. Uh, We had a lot of machinery coming into play that we weren't used to, and it sparked people moving from uh, rural areas into uh, towns and cities to get into things like uh, heavy agricultural Uh, manufacturing, mining, transportation, and technology uh, had great effects on our social, economic, and cultural conditions of those particular times. The thing that led it to the safety portion of the Industrial Revolution, where the safety came into play, is when people started moving into uh, doing milling-type jobs and heavy industrial jobs that we weren't used to, Uh, There weren't any regulations really in place, and people didn't know how to deal with some of the equipment and the technology that was involved. And we had a lot of major accidents, not only in the United States, uh, but in the whole world. Uh, Europe and uh, was having problems as well as we were, uh, also having some problems in Canada. A few of these incidents uh, include uh, back in the 1860s, we had uh, Pemberton Mill was a large factory in Loris, Massachusetts, uh, and it collapsed without warning and killed an estimated 145 workers and uh, injured over 166. We had the uh, Washburn A Mill uh, in 1878 in Minneapolis, uh, was destroyed by a flower dust explosion. It killed 18, uh, and that one at least led to some regulatory changes in the milling industry, which helped out tremendously. In uh, 1905, we had the Grover Shoe Factory disaster, uh, which was a major boiler explosion, and it killed at least 58 people and injured over 150 in Brockton, Massachusetts. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. We're going to give it a try. The Courier Mine Disaster in Courier, France uh, in uh, 1906 killed an estimated 1,099 workers, including children, in the worst mining accident in European history. There we go. Triangle... uh, Shirt Waste Factory Fire in New York City in 1911 uh, was a major incident as well. Uh, This one was a major industrial disaster uh, in the garment industry. 143 garment workers uh, either died in the fire or jumped to their deaths. What made this one really drastic is there's actually a lot of photographs of this particular incident. which is extremely gory. You see policemen standing by with the bodies of women that are just laying on the street that had jumped out of the windows to escape the flames. Uh, we had the, again, hard to hard for me to pronounce this one, the Singhide 
Colliery disaster uh, was the worst mining accident in the United Kingdom. Of 439 workers died in, back in 1913. In uh, 1917, in uh, Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, we had the Halifax explosion, a uh, ship loaded with uh, 9,000 tons of high explosives destined for France caught fire and as a result of a collision in Halifax Harbor, it exploded and it was the most powerful explosion in world history uh, before the first atomic bomb test in New Mexico. It killed an estimated 2,000 people, though the numbers are estimated could actually go higher than that and uh, injured about 9,000 people. Uh, this one is a little bit unusual. I actually thought this one was a joke when I first heard it. Uh, in 1919, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, there was the Boston Molasses Disaster. Uh, and there was a large molasses tank that burst. Now the molasses was heated. It's very important to realize that it was heated. Uh, because we know molasses is normally very slow moving. Uh, in this case, this heated molasses, uh, when the tank burst, there was a wave of molasses that rushed through the streets and it estimated 35 miles an hour, killing 21 people and injuring over 150. And there's also a uh, old saying that uh, if the weather's right and you're in the area where the Boston molasses disaster occurred on hot summer's day you can still smell the molasses in the air well the problem with all of these uh, we had a lot of people that were getting injured a lot of people that were getting killed and uh, that led to us needing to start looking at regulating you know some of the industries that were out there well what ended up happening also in this period of time we came up with the robber barons. Now, robber barons amassed wealth by controlling natural resources and using government influence, paying extremely low wages, buying out competitors, and selling stock at inflated prices to collapse other companies. Well, the robber barons, uh, we've most people have heard of at least some of these robber barons, and we went, oh man, these robber barons, you know, these were really rich people, rich and powerful. Uh, that is true, but they were also not very nice people. They did a lot, a lot of pretty bad stuff to people. And these include folks like uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was into steamships and railroads. Andrew Carnegie, who was a, a steel manufacturer. Uh, one that's going to come up, yeah, we'll have some fun with this one. Henry Clay Frisk, who was into steel manufacturing. He was actually associated with Andrew Carnegie for a while, but he was also involved in the mining industry. We have J.P. Morgan, the financier and a banker. J.D. Rockefeller, who, who's with, who created Standard Oil. Jay Gould, who was a uh, Wall Street trader. James Fisk, also a Wall Street trailer, trader. And uh, Cullis Huntington, who was a railroad builder. Now, along with these guys, who were classic robber barons, there was a guy that stood a little bit out to the side of them, uh, and it was Henry Ford. Henry Ford was uh, con considered an industrialist also, uh, and by some people he was considered a robber baron as well. Uh, he, uh, he developed the assembly line mass production method for producing cars, uh, but he was known for paying his workers particularly well. 
Uh, he was anti-war anti and anti-union, uh, though there was a little bit of a problem. Uh, he, at one time, was looking at potentially selling a lot of his uh, Ford automotive engines to uh, Germany to use in their war planes. And that deal eventually fell through, but it did give him a little bit of bad reputation there for a while. Now, these guys... Uh, the guys, the robber barons, were known to use what was called the unholy trinity defense from a safety standpoint. So if somebody got hurt on the job or we had one of these major disasters, uh, you would look at it and say, ooh, from the unholy trinity, the three parts of the unholy trinity, uh, the first one is it's the employee's fault. The employee made a mistake. The employee got hurt. It's the employee's fault. Why should we be held responsible for that? The second part of the Holy Trinity defense was uh, the employee knew that the job was dangerous when they hired on. Yeah, so they accepted the fact that it was a dangerous job when they hired on. And then we have the third portion of that, which is another employee caused the accident or an incident that hurt the other employees. So why should I be responsible for them as the employer since another employee caused it? It's their fault. Now, the unholy trinity defense was very, very popular and was used in a lot, a lot of areas. Uh, one of the ones that uh, we had mentioned earlier, the uh, shirtwaist uh, company that had the people jumping out the windows in 1911, well, they used the unholy trinity defense, and they had actually locked the, uh, locked the stairways to the fire escapes they locked the stairways because they didn't want people going out on the stairways and taking smoke breaks. So they actually locked the doors. And the reason that these people had to jump out the windows is they couldn't get to an escape. The doors were locked. Uh, and uh, they used the unholy trinity defense and said, well, those people, if they weren't taking those breaks, we wouldn't have had to lock those doors. And uh, they ended up paying, paying all of the people, you know, the families, the people that had died, they ended up paying them, you know, a small, small amount. We're looking like 25, 25 to $50 per person that died. It was ridiculous. But the unholy trinity defense uh, has been around for a long time. And it actually still trails along some today. And I'll bring up some of those points as we go through, through the process of this particular podcast. Uh, we go from the unholy trinity defense... The unholy trinity defense actually led to the uh, formation of unions. Now, when unions uh, first were formed, uh, it a little unusual. Uh, I come from South Louisiana. In the South, we don't have a whole lot of unions uh, in the southern states. Uh, in the northern, more industrialized states, you see a lot more unions. And the reason because of that is we were agricultural and they were industrial. It, that was basically the breakdown. Uh, there's some political stuff that goes with that uh, also. Uh, the, the unionized states are primarily, if you look at uh, which states uh, can actually require you to be part of a union, those states are actually primarily the Democratic states now, uh, with the uh, Republican states not requiring it. Uh, so it's, it's kind, of a, kind of an interesting process to, to look at how things have formed up over the years. But uh, unions were initially formed uh, to provide better working conditions for the people out there on the job sites, give them safer working conditions, and provide adequate pay for the work that they performed. 
which initially you would say, oh, man, unions, that's a great thing. Unions, yeah, and I don't have a problem with unions one way or the other. Uh, but it's just a kind of a different way of looking at things. Well, the uh, you look at the robber barons really had a problem with this union formation stuff. And you got to remember when these unions were first being formed back in the early 1900s, uh, most of the workers that uh, were in the unions were actually uh, immigrants that had just come to the United States. And it caused a real big problem uh, politically. You know, what are we going to do with these with these immigrants? You know, they want to come and get work, and they were unionizing and causing, causing some problems. So what the unions did uh, is they decided that uh, they were going to get into what was known as union busting. Now, <clears throat> meeting union demands initially provided to be proved to be very expensive uh, for the employer. So they took to the union busting tactics, and there's basically three tactics they used. They used brute force. Uh, they would hire thugs, and they would come in and basically, you know, whap these guys on the head to get them to go back to work, or whap them in the head to get them out of the way, and they'd replace them with other workers. Uh, military force was sometimes used, and yeah, the unions, because there was a lot of money, uh, excuse me, there because the robber barons had political connections and had a lot of money, they were able to get the, the military in some cases to actually help them, you know, deal with these uh, unions when people would strike. They also used the process of infiltration, basically espionage. They would insert people into the unions to keep an eye on what the unions were doing. So they, you know, they actually had a system that they were using. Now, uh, going back to our first one, we talked about brute force. Uh, we're going to talk some about the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons uh, have a very interesting history, uh, but they are heavily involved in the union busting process. Uh, so we're going to talk quite a bit about them. As a matter of fact, we're going to start with them right now. Uh, the Pinkertons, we had Alan Pinkerton uh, back in the 1850s. Uh, he and some of his associates provided security for some of the railroads. In 1861, Alan Pinkerton and one of his, uh, one of his agents, uh, Kate Warren, spoiled an assassination attempt on President Lincoln. So that was a really good deal. Uh, so that was done. And in 1874, Pinkerton agents attempted to arrest Jesse James. Now, here's an interesting process. Uh, they attempted to uh, arrest Jesse James because he was robbing the uh, railroads. And uh, he tracked the, his agents tracked the James gang to uh, their family home and uh, threw in a smoke grenade to help chase, you know, flush these people out of the house. The house caught on fire, killing an eight-year-old brother of the James boys and uh, causing their mother to lose an arm. And that caused a bunch of uh, political backlash and a lot of support for the James gang, you know, from the locals. Uh, they thought that was very unreasonable that that happened. In uh, 1877, uh, there was the Great Railroad Strike, and Pinkerton agents worked as uh, union infiltrators during that. In the Great Railroad Strike, more than 100,000 workers participated in the strike, and that was across most of the United States. Uh, what started it was in West Virginia, they offered uh, in the new contract, uh, they were offering the uh, workers another 10% pay cut. And this was the third pay reduction, 10% pay reduction for the workers in less than a year. 
And uh, over a thousand people were jailed during the duration of this back in 1877, and over a hundred people died. The strike uh, reduced the amount of freight that was transferred by rail over the, across the United States and reduced the amount of uh, freight by over 50 percent. Uh, local militias and federal army troops were used to bring the strike to an end, and uh, industrialists continued to cut wages and break unions. So you can see some really bad stuff was going on during during this particular you know, stage of the game. In uh, 1886, the uh, Haymarket riot in Chicago. Uh, during that, uh, they had demonstrators that were they were demonstrating because they wanted an eight-hour workday is what what they were trying to get. And uh, during that process, someone threw a uh, bomb into the demonstration, and it resulted in. Uh, a police response, and they just started firing into the crowd. It left uh, seven policemen ended up dying, along with uh, at least four protesters. Uh, eight labor movement leaders were actually arrested. Seven of them received capital punishment. They were actually sentenced to hang. And the eighth received a 15-year jail term. Now, some of those were actually, uh, some of those were reduced. Four of the people were actually hung. Four of them looked like they got uh, their sentence commuted and uh the uh, guy that was uh, had the 15-year jail term actually got out early. Uh, some of the Pinkerton agents actually testified at the trials, but uh, xenophobia was rampant across the uh, mostly immigrant union workers. The people were scared. The folks in the U.S., uh, the non-immigrants were scared uh, of these folks, thought they were getting too much power, and uh, the demonstrating workers were not successful in the implementation of an eight-hour workday. That did not come about to happening. So really, uh, in the long run, that uh, you know that that strike did not did not do very well. Uh, it you know slowed things down, freight down by fifty percent. And you go, man, that was really good, you know. And a hundred thousand people participated. That was spectacular. But they still didn't get what they were asking for. They still didn't get the eight-hour day. <laughs> and also, they continued to drop the drop the pay rates for these people so really it didn't do any good uh here comes the the guy that i think is really interesting and i actually found this out as i was going through this process of putting this particular program together uh henry clay frick remember i mentioned he was kind of the right hand man of andrew carnegie at carnegie steel uh, in 1892, uh, Carnegie was uh, traveling, traveling around, and uh, Frick was uh, in charge of was in charge of the uh, the plant and in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Now, while he was in charge, they ended up uh, the workers wanted to go on strike. Now, Frick hired roughly 300 Pinkerton agents to deal with the striking. Uh, Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. He was going to deal with them in the Homestead, Pennsylvania plant. And uh, they basically started off with the, the workers that went on strike. They fired them. Uh, just fired them and were going to bring in you know, replacement workers. And the, the union workers were re refusing to let these guys come to work. Uh, so this resulted in a violent clash. There were 300 Pinkerton agents brought in on barges. Uh, so they came down the river, and uh, when they showed up, uh, to their surprise, uh, they ended up facing 10,000 strikers. 
Uh, nine strikers and seven Pinkerton agents were killed uh, during a day of violence. Uh, the Pinkertons uh, basically had to surrender. They were just so outnumbered they had to surrender or die. And uh, the problem is they had to go through uh, the striking workers to the relative safety of the jail. So the, the sheriff was trying to get them to the jail. Uh, most of the Pinkerton agents were injured, some of them seriously, while they were trying to get through the crowd of strikers you know, to get to the jail. And uh, the barges that they had come in on were actually burned by the strikers. So that eliminated the chance that they could escape the way they came in. Uh, the governor, uh, Robert E. Patterson, sent 8,000 militiamen to deal with the strikers. And Carnegie Steel Corporation got the plant running with replacement workers uh, that were paid lower wages and worked longer hours. Now here's, here's the part that I thought was very interesting. Henry Clay Frisk's last name became synonymous with the cuss word F-C-K as a result of how badly the workers were treated. How many, and I didn't know this, but I've heard people say, well, I don't give a frick. Frick you. Well, that's where that came from, is this guy was very, very unpopular. And he's not finished yet. We're going to cover another piece that uh, he was he was involved in. Uh, he actually was a uh, owner of a mine. And in, in the mine, there was actually an explosion at this mine and uh, killed a bunch of workers. And... Let's see, the name of the mine was Mammoth Mine, and uh, the name of the company was Frick Coke Company. Now, Coke is not as in Coca-Cola, but Coke is as in a uh, derivative of coal that is used to make steel. So, since yeah, he was hooked up in the steel industry, he was hooked up on another side of the steel industry, basically. Uh, so, <clears throat> the thing with him... Uh, he was very unpopular. He did some nice stuff. He was also very immigrant-phobic. Yeah, he did not like the immigrants too much. And uh, the thing is, uh, when he came through, and he was very money-oriented. Uh, when I say very money-oriented, uh, Henry Clay Frick, at uh, his high point, was worth in uh, his, his day money, or modern-day money, was worth about $39 billion. So this guy this guy was not very well liked, uh, but he did have a whole lot of money and he did have a whole lot of power. Now the mine, once they had the, uh, the explosion at the mine, uh, the mine eventually closed down and yeah, Frick moved on. He lived up until his 80s. Uh, but like I said, uh, just not a very well liked individual. As a matter of fact, uh, after the uh, homestead strike, he actually uh, he actually ended up uh, with somebody trying to kill him. They had an anarchist uh, come in and to his office and shot him twice and stabbed him in the leg several times, but he survived. Uh, he was shot in the shoulder and uh, in the neck, and then stabbed in the legs when they were trying to subdue. Uh, subdue the attacker he ended up with a knife and ended up stabbing him in the legs while he could still get to him so not a very cool period of time uh now all of this led uh to something that we are all pretty familiar with these days 
workers' compensation legislation. Uh, workers' comp legislation came through uh, the first uh, constitutional uh, workman's comp legislation was uh, done in Wisconsin in 1911. And initially, unions fought uh, workman's compensation because they, it was seen as a uh, threat to their power. Now, moving farther along, much farther along, uh, we go up into 1969. President Nixon uh, was busy in uh, 1969 forming OSHA and EPA. Uh, OSHA actually came out in 1970, uh, but took took a while to get formed up. Now, when OSHA was formed, uh, the unions became very upset, again, because it severely weakened their power. Uh, and because the government took charge of regulating safety, and that was one of their big pushes. You know, we're going to give you a safe workplace. Well, yeah, now the government's saying, no, we're going to give you a safe workplace. So it, it did take some of their power away. In the 1970s, there was also a problem. Uh, the RICO Act came out, the uh, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act uh, was created in 1970 to combat organized crime. Uh, and this had some effect on unions with uh, problems like uh, Jimmy Hoffa and you know, those guys. Uh, but some of the unions were actually use, using member dues to finance other you know, operations that were not necessarily legitimate. Uh, so that, that affected some of the unions also. Now, Going into theories of accident causation, you know, why, why do we have accidents? Uh, back in the 1930s, something came up called the domino theory, and it's actually used a little bit even today. Uh, the domino theory basically said what you're looking for, uh, we use it in root cause analysis. And what you're looking for is you're looking for a key. You're looking for the one domino that if I remove this domino, this whole incident would not happen. That one domino would be our root cause. So domino theory, you know, is an older theory, but yeah, back in 1932, that's a long, long time ago. We're getting, we're getting, you know, 90 plus years. Yeah, that's a long time uh, for that to be in effect. But basically, domino theory uh, and human factors theory and accident incident theory, those three, basically, those three theories, ultimately blame people for the accident or incident. It's always going to be human error. It doesn't matter what happens, it's going to be human error. Uh, and that was kind of a, a fallback to uh, some of the work being done by uh, William Henry, Herbert Heinrich, excuse me, uh, back in the 30s also. Uh, he was with the Travelers Insurance Agency, and he came up with uh, behavior-based safety. And basically that said that, you know, well over 80% of your accidents and incidents can be, you know, be narrowed down to somebody's unsafe behavior and employee's unsafe behavior. Well, the stuff that he was looking at was, he was looking at accident and incident reports, like thousands of them. Uh, but the accident and incident reports were actually being filled out by supervisors, you know, not workers, but looking at the supervisor. So the supervisors always blame the employee. So, of course, his numbers may have been skewed a little bit. And uh, that's one of the big arguments about uh, behavioral-based safety now is it may have been based on some slightly, you know, slightly deceptive information. 
Now, theories of accident causation, you know, continuing on to some of the new ones, newer ones, uh, systems theory. Now, systems theory said, hey, it may not be the employees. It may actually be a flaw with the system. The other system may have a problem. Uh, and that kind of goes into, uh, you know, dimming, the dimming theory. Dimming was a uh, systems guy. And he was all about, you know, you know, if you can't decide that if you can't describe what you do as a system, then you probably aren't doing it very well. So uh, systems theory eventually led to PSM, process safety management. So that one, yeah, that one's been around for a while, uh, but it, it had some good points also. Then somebody came up with the brilliant idea of using what they call combination theory. Uh, combination theory basically said that, uh, hey, none of these one theories by themselves really explain this. We have to use two or three at the same time. Well, that got into combination theory. Now, from combination theory, we get into uh, BBS, behavioral-based safety. And it was based on seven basic principles. We had intervention. Uh, you see somebody that's about to do something wrong, stop them. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Uh, so that's where you hear, even today, you hear a lot about stop work authority. There's where the inter intervention takes place. Uh, identification of internal factors. Uh, motivation to behave in the desired manner. Focus on uh, positive consequences of appropriate behavior. It's a very positive thing. We don't like to throw the negative out with uh, behavior-based safety. We want to stay as positive as we can. Uh, application of scientific method. Uh, we want to, when you're looking at uh, doing safety observations with uh, behavioral-based safety, one of the things you're looking at is uh, you're looking at uh, a JSA, a job safety analysis, or, or a job hazard analysis, a JHA, which lists the job steps. Job steps, hazards to the steps would be the next column, and how are we going to how are we going to control those hazards, basically, are the three basic steps to a JSA. Well, what happens when we're doing safety observations, I'm looking at your JSA and making sure you're following the steps that you said you were going to follow. You know, so, you know, we're basically, we're motivating you, you know, to behave but with a desired manner. We're focusing on the positive consequences, but application of the scientific method, hey, this is what you said you were going to do. That's what we're holding you to. If you're not, then we stop the job and say, hey, I notice you're not doing this the way you said you were going to. Is there a particular reason why? And then we can correct that issue and yeah, restart the job. Uh, integration of information. Uh, when we are integrating information, sometimes we have to inform other departments or other companies or other job functions that their service is going to be interrupted. Uh, so a lot of a lot of jobs uh, are going to have SimOps plans. Uh, SimOps plans basically are saying, hey, we need to talk to everybody that's involved in this process and let them know that we're going to be changing something, that we're going to interrupt their, their process. Uh, because if not, they may go, and, for example, we have a system locked and tagged out. Uh, they may say, hey, our system's not working and go cut our locks off without letting us know. That's the kind of thing we're trying to yeah, trying to prevent. Uh, we have planned interventions that are also part of the behavioral-based safety process. 
Now, with behavioral-based safety, let's go to basically uh, behavioral-based safety is an approach where we're looking at, you know, the worker's behavior. Like I said, uh, some of the stuff I've seen on uh, behavioral-based safety says that over 95% of your accidents and incidents uh, are caused by unsafe worker behavior. Now, all of this came out with uh, Herbert William Heinrich. Uh, he was born back in 1886 and died in 1962. Uh, behavioral-based safety, uh, behavioral safety came out really around 1931. And one of the things he's famous for is the Heinrich Triangle, or what we used to call and still do call the 330 rule. And it actually still works to some degree. And it said basically for every 300 incidents, you're going to have 29 minor injuries. And for every 29 minor injuries, you're going to have one major injury or a fatality. And that was the 330 rule. So it was 300 plus 29 plus 1. And there's where the 330 comes from. Now, like I said, his numbers may have been skewed a little bit. Uh, but if we want to uh, improve our safety processes, uh, we need to take Heinrich's basic information and we need to combine it with W. Edward Deming's information. The Deming Principles. There's 14 of those. Uh, now, Deming was around, lived, he was born in 1900 and died in 1993, had a nice long life. Uh, and he was process fo focused, process systems focused. Uh, and his big thing was variation. The act, fact, or process of varying, change, or deviation in form, condition, appearance, extent, etc., from a former or usual state or from an assumed standard. Variation was a bad thing. He was you know, definitely into non-variation. Well, one of the things that was interesting with Deming is uh, Deming kind of came into prominence at a weird time. Uh, it was around World War II. It was actually you know, just prior to World War II. Uh, and he went into the U.S. automakers and said, hey, you know, I've got some, I'm, you know, I'm all about processes and I can show you some processes uh, that you can use in your automaking that would revolutionize, you know, the quality of your products. So, you know, process, the processes led to something called TQM, Total Quality Management. So not only did it streamline the process, but it gave you a better quality product at the end, end of the process. Well, he was pitching this, you know, just prior to World War II when the U.S. automakers kind of had a stranglehold, you know, on the man car manufacturing. You know, we had some of the best quality in the world. And they said, eh, go away. We don't want to deal with you. Now, Deming apparently was, yeah, a little bit of an ornery soul. He had, yeah, a little bit of an attitude. And he said, okay. And so he left. And uh, post-World War II, he popped up over in Japan. And he was going to help Japan's automakers, you know, try to get their, you know, auto manufacturing, you know, back up to speed. And he was going to use his new process systems. And within a few years, you know, Japan started making some pretty good cars. And they started getting competitive. And, uh... All of a sudden, you know, the U.S. auto manufacturers got back in touch with him and said, hey, you know, maybe you got something. Why, why don't you come over here and, you know, <laughs> deal, deal with us, help us out too. 
Now, the problem uh, that everybody has with, uh, with Deming's 14 principles, the principles make pretty good sense. They're, they're you know, pretty logical, actually. Uh, but the problem is they're not easy. They're not easy. If you have a system that's already up and running, it's very difficult to implement the dimming principles because uh, you're going to have to really renovate your system. Basically, throw a hand grenade in the door, blow your system up, and start over again. Uh, in Japan, he didn't have that problem because Japan stuff was already blown to pieces. So he was basically starting from scratch. So it was much easier to implement the systems there. Uh, but when we get into the... Uh, 14 principles, and I'll just mention them real quick as we go through. Uh, create constancy of purpose towards improvement. That was number one. Number two, adopt the new philosophy processes. Uh, cease dependence on inspection. If your process is good, you shouldn't need to do the inspections. And yeah, so that was the way he looked at it. Uh, four, move towards a single supplier for any one item. Now, that kind of goes against uh, the old tradition of don't put all your eggs in one basket, but he wanted you to develop uh, good, reliable uh, suppliers and single source suppliers so that you were all working together as kind of as one team. Uh, number five, uh, improve con constantly and forever. So you're always trying to improve. Uh, institute training on the job. Now, that's number six. On-the-job training is the best training you can get if you have somebody that is good at the job themselves. Uh, most of us that have been in the workforce for a while have probably been trained by somebody who really couldn't do the job themselves. So uh, on-the-job training can be either the best training you ever got or it can be the worst. Uh, it depends on you know, the skill of the person that's doing the training. Uh, institute leadership. People are responsible, you know, for their areas. You need to be you know, responsible for, you know, meeting your quotas and making sure your employees have what they need to do their jobs. Uh, drive out fear is number eight. Uh, number nine, break down barriers between departments. Uh, again, for those of us that have worked around for a while, uh, you may find that, uh, for example, in the oil and gas industry, we've done a lot of work there. Uh, you have drilling and production, though they work for the same same company. Yeah, they're they're two enemies of each other. They don't want to cooperate with each other because each one thinks they're more important than the other one. Uh, so those kind of things can happen. So they need to break down the, the uh, barriers between departments so that we're all on the same team. Uh, eliminate slogans. Now, I've got one for eliminate slogans that's going to go back to our uh, Mr. Frisk that we talked about earlier. Now, Mr. Frisk had a, a gentleman that worked for him, the guy's name uh, at the uh, mine that blew up. Uh, the guy that was running the mine was a guy named Thomas Lynch. Now, Thomas Lynch coined the phrase, safety is the first consideration. Now, he put that on all the paperwork after they had the big explosion and stuff. Safety is the first consideration. Popped up on all their paperwork. And they said, man, that's too long. So what did they do? They shortened it. And it's still out there today. How many times have you heard, heard people use safety first? That's where it came from. Our old buddy, Henry Clay Frisk's uh, manager at the uh, mining 
mammoth mind came up with that uh, way way back when you know back in the 1800s so it's kind of kind of an interesting interesting thing that all these uh, little bits and pieces interconnect with each other so we were uh, eliminate slogans. Uh, slogans, honestly, uh, when you hear people say safety first, I personally have a problem with that because it's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Uh, because if your production isn't good, uh, you know, if production is down, you know, it doesn't matter if you're safe or not, you know, we're not making any money. Uh, so really, at, you know, in my view, the best that you can look at is to have production Production and safety running at the same speed, running neck and neck. And that's the best you're going to do. You're never going to put safety really out in front of production because we have to have production to have a company. Uh, I hope that, I hope you guys agree with that, but that's, you know, kind of where I'm coming from. Now, that was, eliminate slogans was number 10. Number 11 is eliminate uh, management by objectives, which is, which is a little bit of I had to really look into that one. That one I didn't didn't quite get at first, you know, because everybody's about objectives. You know, you have all these objectives laid out for you. Uh, but with dimming, remember it's about processes, processes, systems. Uh, so what you're doing is you're building your objectives into the process. So we don't manage by objectives; we're managing by the process. So it's a little, it's a little bit different, but it took me a little, little looking and reading up to, to get, get up with that. Uh, number 12 in Deming's, uh, 14 management principles, number 12, remove barriers to pride of workmanship. People want to be proud of the work they're doing. And I've seen it. And a lot of people have that, you know, they take away your pride of workmanship. Oh, hell, I can go hire a monkey to go do that job. You know, that, and that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, that's a barrier to pride of workmanship. You know, we want to, we want to be proud of the work that we're doing. Uh, we have 13, uh, which is Institute Education and Self-Improvement. Again, that's the continuous improvement process we mentioned earlier, you know, Sometimes we have to get a little more training, a little more education, because we're saving, we're changing equipment. Yeah, we want to make sure that our people are doing good as well, and our people can improve. If our people improve, the process improves. And remember, the transformation is everybody's job. It's management's job. It's the field guy's job. It's mid-management's job. Everybody's got a piece of this. Now, we're going to change over to a new guy uh, that we hear a lot about, uh, or at least we hear about what he was famous for. Uh, adult learning theory. We have a lot of safety folks now that, you know, you, you look at applications and, you know, there's, you know, we, are you familiar with adult learning theory? Well, okay, adult learning theory uh, was has been around since, <laughs> again, early 80s and, and actually a little before that. Came up, it was uh, developed by a gentleman called Malcolm Shepard Knowles. He was around from 1913, born to when he died in 1997. And he came up with uh, these two terms that we hear. Uh, there's a term called uh, pedagogy and andragogy. And uh, he was famous for coming up with andragogy. Now, the difference between the two, uh, andragogy is a theory based on uh, adults, dealing with adults 
pedagogy is dealing with kids. Uh, if you go to school, and we're talking primarily all the way, actually all the way up into college, that's basically pedagogy. You got one person, the instructor or professor, is pitching the information. It's all coming from a single source, and it's coming from him to the student. That's it. There's very little going from the student back except on tests and that sort of stuff. So basically the uh, the instructor, the professor, the trainer is, is the high and mighty. That's where all your information is going to come from. Uh, in andragogy, in adult-based learning, uh, we have to take into consideration that a lot of these people that are coming in as adults are coming in with skills and training and you know they have some experience of their own so what we have is we have the instructor the professor the trainer is now part of a bigger system because everybody's having some input into the system he's basically responsible for keeping you, you know, on track so the thing is, everybody's bringing in, you know, experience. Uh, they're bringing in learning styles. The learning styles can be very different. Uh, some people are visual learners. Some are audio learners. You know, some of them are kinesthetic learners. Got to have their hands on it. Whichever your style is, we want to make sure that we adapt to that so that you can enjoy the information. Also, adults learn better when they need to know something. So what we're looking at, the six assumptions when we're looking at andragogy, uh, self-concept, you know, what you know, what experience does that person have, uh, which we get into their experience in the background. Uh, we get into uh, the next one, which is readiness to learn depends on need. Do I really need to know this information? Uh the problem is, uh, it's a problem-centered focus uh, when you're teaching adults. Yeah, I got a problem. How do I deal with this? I just need to know how to deal with this problem. I don't need all the extra information. Let me know how, how I need to deal with this. Uh, internal motivation. What motivates them to be there? And all of these are kind of interrelated. Uh, internal motivation. My internal motivation is I need to solve this problem. Uh, adults need to know why they need to know something. Uh, when I was in school, one of the things that, uh, because if you have listened to my uh, earlier podcast, uh, I'm dyslexic, and they found that I was dyslexic fairly early. Uh, so I'm a very kinesthetic learner. I, you know, I have to get my hands on stuff. I, I can hear stuff, but if you make me read it, I don't pick it up real well. Uh, so you'll find me using things like uh, I'll record Regulations. I can remember regulations almost word for word, uh, but not if I read them. If I read them, I read them onto a, used to be a cassette recorder, and I would listen to them. Now I record them on my phone. And uh, I listen to myself read through it several times. And after I hear it a few times, I've, I've got it. And my retention is excellent. I don't tend to forget it once I've heard it. Uh, but if you make me read it, I, I don't necessarily hold on to it for very long. Uh, but when you get into adults need to know why they need to know something, one of the things I had problems with in school uh, with the, and this deals with pedagogy, you know, when you're coming up and you have one person that's pitching the information to you, uh, if you go into a class on algebra, 
they go, okay, here's algebra one, and here's, you know, this is how you do it, and this, you know, you, you go through all your algebra stuff. Well, the problem is, they never told me when I was taking algebra, they never really told me what I could use it for. You know, you're going to be able to use this to do this. So I didn't learn it. I learned it long enough to pass a test, but that was that was all I got. So I was very limited to what I was picking up. Now, <clears throat> Malcolm Knowles had some really, really good ideas. Uh, we're going to jump into another gentleman here for just a minute, and I'll time all together in just a few minutes. Uh, but Peter Drucker, Peter Drucker was... Uh, Born back in uh, 1909, he was born in Austria. Uh, he died in 2005. He was a management consultant, educator, and an author. Uh, his writings contributed to uh, the philosophical and practical foundations of what's known as modern business corporations. Yeah, this this is how modern business corporations work. Well, that's what he did. He was he was a management leadership management guy. Uh, and he had some excellent, excellent information also. And uh, one of the things that was in a few of the articles that he did now, he's into leadership by objective. So he and somebody like Deming don't necessarily get along with each other. They, you know, they were kind of at odds in some areas. Uh, but one of the things I really liked about uh, Peter Drucker is uh, he aimed things at, okay, Here's the job we want to do. Yeah, here's how this business needs to operate. But he dealt with all levels of an organization. Uh, unfortunately, in my career in the safety business, and I've been around for you know, a little over 40 years doing this stuff, and uh, man, how many times have I ended up uh, doing what I call bottoms-up training? You, know, you train all the field guys with the new safety information and all of that, but the management guys never show up. So eventually, you know, yeah, somebody in the field's going, hey, we got this really new cool stuff that Lewis told us how to do, man, and here's how we can apply it. Man, this is great information. And you have somebody in management that goes, we've been doing this way for 30 years. We're not going to change. You know, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And Drucker was kind of like, hey, you know, let's look at our stuff. He and Deming both kind of did this was, you know, hey, let's look at it and if it's not broke, let's break it. Let's look at it and see if we can make it better than what it is. You know, we don't want to be stagnant and do the same thing for 30 years. Uh, when you're looking at accidents and incidents, uh, that's one of the things that you see from incident and accident reports. And it's one of the things that uh, Heinrich had noticed as well, that your guys that have uh, less than one year experience, man, the accident rates on those guys is high. It's much higher than guys that have been around for a while. Uh, but what happens is statistically, if you look at it, guys that have been in the same position haven't been promoted up. They're doing the same thing they've been doing. Uh, for more than about five years, you see their accident rates going back up. And it's because they don't have their heads in the game anymore. You know, they're going into autopilot. They've been doing it you know, been doing it this way for 25 years. You know, I could do that job with my eyes closed. And if they say they could do it with their eyes closed, they probably have. It's like driving. If you've been driving and you're driving on a long trip and you kind of shake your head somewhere along the line and you don't remember the last you know, 10 or 15 miles you just drove, you were driving an autopilot. You, know, you, weren't, you weren't really on the job thinking about what you were doing. Now, 
going from Peter Drucker and management over to uh, one of the last things we're going to talk about. Just got a couple of pieces left uh, to get through this one. Uh, we get into, uh, we need to be teaching people current technical health, safety, and environmental information. Now, current, <laughs> a lot of these regulations don't change very often, but when they do, we need to make sure we're keeping up with it. So we have things like uh, OSHA's 29 Occupational Safety and Health Administration, 29 CFR, Code of Federal Regulations, 1910, which is our general industry standards. We have 29 CFR 1926, which is our construction standards. Those are the two we really need to be sharp with. Uh, we're also going to have to deal with EPA standards. So we need to be familiar with that. And there's a bunch of EPA standards. Uh, we deal with uh, transportation of dangerous goods, Department of Transportation stuff here in the States. Uh, there's regulations we have to know there. Now, we're going to get from regulatory information. Uh, we have regulatory information, and we have what's called consensus standards. Uh, consensus standards are, boy, there's a bunch of those. Uh, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, is a consensus standard. ANSI, American National Standards, excuse me, American National Standards Institute, that's a consensus standard. Uh, ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental and Industrial Hygiene, Genus. Again, you know, consensus standard, compressed gas association, uh, NFPA, National Fire Protection Association, uh, NEC, National Electrical Code, and they go on and on. Uh, a lot of these, their consensus standards, if they are mentioned in, though they're recommendations, if they're recommend, if those recommendations are referred to in 1910 or 1926 in the OSHA regs, if they're referred to in the OSHA regs, they become law by reference. So though we're only looking at two books, you know, and going, hey, you know, two books of regs, that's pretty easy stuff. I can almost memorize that much information. When you throw in the consensus standards, you're looking at, you know, a library full of books. And thank goodness now that uh, this far into my career, things have turned more electronic used to be you had to carry copies of this stuff. You had to have you know, books and books and books. You, know, you carried a whole briefcase full of extra books for stuff that you had to look up because you can't possibly know it all. <laughs> so now uh, looking stuff up is much, much easier, which is a great deal. Now, what happens is you know, we have to look at things like Deming with his process safety and Heinrich with his behavioral safety. Uh, Knowles with his adult learning techniques, Peter Drucker with management and leadership. Then we get into all this current technical health, safety, and environmental information. We get into all that stuff. What it comes down to is this. We have to find the right balance of ingredients for your particular situation. Now, situation changes all the time. There is no real thing such as a cookie-cutter solution. No one solution is going to work for everybody because it's going to have to be adjusted to your particular situation. So which one, which one do we need to look at? Well, with that, folks, our, uh, my basic run-through on uh, Industrial Revolution you know, brings about the Safety Revolution. That brings me to the end of that. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you have got the information. I hope you picked up a little bit. 
if you would like to contact me and talk talk safety information, please feel free to contact me at lewis.wardroop at hotmail.com. And that's L-O-U-I-S dot Wardroop, W-A-R-D-R-O-U-P at hotmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. And I'll be back with you. And hopefully I don't have to wait six months before I get another one out. Hopefully should have another one out uh, this coming week. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.